Welcome to Sex and Politics. This is a little bonus podcast we do here at Savage Love Gas Industries for our Magnum subscribers. We're going to have a conversation today about drag with the writer, author, podcaster, Phoebe maltz Bovi. Drag, drag. The right has attempted to gin up a culture war about drag with some terrifying success. Proud Boys and other right-wing thugs have been showing up at drag queen story hours, menacing kids and their parents, and throwing the charge groomer in the faces of drag queens and gay people in the queer community generally. Phoebe maltz Bovi is the author of The Perils of Privilege, co-host of the podcast Feminine Chaos. She grew up in New York City, so she's familiar with drag and drag queens. She went to school in Chicago, now lives in Toronto with her family. She has a newsletter on Substack where one of her recent pieces, Such a Drag, caught my eye. There are fewer fears more absurd than the idea that drag queens are out to sexually exploit small children, Bovi writes. Drag queens are generally gay men and are outside the fraught realm of drag queen story hour, the sort of gay men more commonly found at nightclubs with other men than anywhere children are present, unlike, say, priests, gymnastic coaches, etc., of any sexual orientation. Phoebe has complicated feelings about drag. And you know what? I'm a former drag queen. I still have feelings about drag, some of them complicated. And I wanted to have her on the show to talk about drag, such a drag, drag queen story hours, and the demonization of drag. Hey, Phoebe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Dan. What an honor. This is Uh, very exciting. I think it's setting the honor bar kind of low, kind of digging a trench and laying honor in it. But (laughs) sure, okay. Uh, When did you first hear about drag queen story hours where were you when you heard the news about them existing i can say exactly where i was i was in the yorkville uh, public library in toronto um with my then uh baby now toddler um and we would go to just general baby story time and there would be these flyers up saying that there was going to be um a drag queen story hour and i thought okay that's something else to do um within walking distance of where we were living at the time but then the pandemic happened and everything uh stopped and so you didn't make it to that drag queen story hour with your kid right we never did go i have been to other events involving drag but never to one specifically aimed at small children I'm, I was pretty shocked. It seems to me that there's a surplus in our strategic national drag reserves because it used to be the only time you saw a drag queen in daylight or daytime was at Pride. And we used to feel sorry for the drag queens melting in the sun uh, at Pride because drag queens were nocturnal. They were a nighttime thing and kind of an adult thing. But you know, when I first heard about drag queen story hours, I was like, okay, there are a lot of like kids who are watching drag race now. And a lot of kids are drag fans. It's just like men in silly costumes playing dress up. And, you know, you think of the tradition of Panto in the UK where there's always a a guy in a dress who's sort of a very important character in that Christmas tradition where parents take their kids to see the Panto and the guy in the dress. So it kind of made sense, but then man, the right, uh, as you uh, unpack in your piece, seized on these drag queen story hours as proof somehow that queer people were coming for your kids, attempting to groom your kids to at once, I I don't know, groom them for what? Uh, And it wasn't long after I heard of drag queen story hours that this agitas started. Mm -hmm. So what I think happened there is not really possible to understand unless you look at 
sort of the entire political spectrum and what's happening fully there. So you have on the one hand, on the left, this idea that to be sort of uh, have an expansive view of gender is really like the sign that you are on the right side of things. Um, and I, I consider myself to be on the left. I do see that as the right side of things. But then what you get is kind of this right wing backlash to that. So whereas there certainly have been um, men wearing dresses and all sorts of entertainment since the, you know, amoebas or whatever, this, this gets treated differently because it's not presented as like, oh, Monty Python, you know, man happens to be wearing a dress, that's the comedy, or maybe that's even the point of that's supposed to be why it's funny because there's a man in a dress, but rather it's supposed to, the the point of it is to make um, gender non-conforming, specifically gender non-conforming um, uh, assigned male at birth people uh, with whatever their um, identity might be um, to make them feel more comfortable. Um, so it's supposed to be to, not to make the gender nonconforming adult feel more comfortable, but make kids feel more comfortable. To make kids to feel exactly, exactly. It's supposed to be sort of a progressive um, presence rather than just entertainment involving a dress. You say very smartly in your piece. It's also a way for parents to signal what team they're on, because there are two kinds of parents. There's the parent who you know would support their kid if they were gender diverse or gender expansive or whatever the term of art is right now. And then there's the parent who would have a heart attack if their boy wasn't sufficiently interested in football. But a lot of people's kids are pretty gender conforming. It seems that most kids are comfortable with girly stuff for the girls and boy stuff Mm -hmm. for the boys. And taking your kid to a drag queen story hour as a parent, even if your kid is gender conforming, is a way of saying, I'm on team right side of history. I'm on team trans women are women. I'm on team LGBTQIA plus, even though my little boy is obsessed with bombs and trucks and guns. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, I've been to many, um, I have two small children. I've been to many such events with not the drag type, just the sort of library, somebody's reading a story. And what's striking about these events is that virtually every parent is a cisgender woman. And yes, indeed, children tend to be gender conforming. I think it's very important to be accepting of those who are not. But yes, most do tend to be. So then that just got me thinking about this whole with the drag queen story hour. Um, I Obviously, I think it's so ridiculous, the idea that drag queens are absconding with people's toddlers or babies. What do they want with them? Doesn't make any sense. It's like almost like blood libel, but... Um, it doesn't make any sense. Oh my God. I have described that as a blood libel. The thing that, you know, I grew up with 50 years ago, Anita Bryant, gay people mm-hmm. didn't have kids. So they had to, they have to recruit yours. And it was about recruiting. That was the smear of art, term of art. Then that was the blood libel. Uh, now it's grooming. You write in mm-hmm. your piece, thus they're all over the place concerned that drag queens, cis gay men are out to sexually abuse children while also somehow making these children trans in the world of actual human beings, drag queens and trans women are generally two different groups of people and drag queens are men. It seems to me that you're giving uh, the people who are demagoguing about drag queen story hours the benefit of the doubt there, that this is a serious concern. Oh no, maybe that was a tone question. I definitely think that they're just kind of, it's sort of a a hate without any particular specificity. Um, as hate often is, there's often a lot of blurriness there. But but it did strike me, though, that there was something else going on with 
this room full of small children, most of whom are indeed going to be gender conforming just because most small children are. Because most, and I want to, and, let me yeah. jump in there. Most people are, and yeah. it's not because most people succumb to gendered expectations. Most boys, you know, we want to create a world where boys who have some like gender nonconforming traits, that that just complicates what it is to be a boy. That doesn't mean they're disqualified from being boys. One of the things about the whole discussion about gender that I find alienating myself personally is, you know, when I was a little boy, I was told I wasn't a real boy because I liked musicals and I liked baking and I liked hanging out with my mother and her friends. (laughs) And so I was told that disqualified me from boy being a boy or a man and like we want to live in a world where men can have traditionally coded feminine interests doesn't mean they're not men women can have traditionally coded masculine interests doesn't mean they're not women like mm-hmm. sometimes i feel like in the whole non-binary conversation there's this gender essentialism that's a little in conflict with what we were trying to do 50 years ago which was not disqualify people from being male or female boys or girls but expand what it meant to be male or female boy or girl for sure. And I think that um, in there's a way in which Drag Queen Story Hour could help with that because, indeed, drag queens do tend to be men in a dress. So it's not saying like, oh, if you're in a dress, that means you have to be a woman or anything like that. But th- what just what keeps getting to me, though, is this idea that you have this room with a bunch of women and a bunch of small children. And what are they seeing? Well, the few in the room who are boys who feel more drawn to wearing a dress might feel some kind of um, affirmation and know they're not alone, which is valuable. The women and the girls, and I mean the gender-conforming and gender-non-conforming girls, are going to be seeing what will, in that context, look like a woman being mocked. And I don't think it's the same. And I should say just like my own politics on this, I think humor is humor, and I, I'm not for you know banning jokes and so forth but i'm saying in terms of what would actually be experienced in the room and what's likely and i think to see somebody sort of doing performing an exaggerated humorous version of woman is i think that's how that would probably be received okay i want to jump back for just a second to the conversation about the people who are out there demagoguing about drag queens grooming children um you see that as opportunistic i see that as deflection because as you say earlier in the piece, we see where kids are being raped and it's not a drag queen story hour. It's at exactly. the church on the corner. Mm-hmm. It's by priests. It's by youth pastors. It's by coaches. It's not by drag queens. But to the point you just made about what these kids are seeing, women being mocked, who really is the drag queen there for? Because I see the drag queen really being there for the parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much about like children's entertainment where there's this like little naughty like thread that if you're tapped into it, you can pick up on. That's really the, you know, the director or the writer of some kids movie or, you know, animated kids movie throwing a bone to the poor suffering parents who are having to sit through whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you have kids, you know yes. what that's like. Yes. And every once in a while there's a wink or a nod at kind of an adult theme or an adult idea that flies mm-hmm. over the kid's head. Mm-hmm. And when I heard, I never, I've never been to a drag queen story hour either. Neither of us have been. It seemed to me like it's the moms that the drag is there for, not necessarily the kids. Right. Well, so I think that that is entirely correct where it comes to the whole sort of um, this notion of that there would be something sexual about drag. If there is, um, like, 
I think it's more on the level of innuendo generally. Obviously, there's all sorts of drag and that could be anything. But I'm saying the idea that there would be something inherently sexual about drag seems like saying there's something inherently sexual about Barbie, you know, like any Mm -hmm. sort of exaggerated female form. No, I, I mean, obviously, if there's some sort of joke with um, like a kind of campy joke. I don't really think that ch- small children are like, oh, I see what that means, you know? And I, I just, I always picture like, I, I don't know, like Mr. Humphreys on um, Are You Being are Served? You being served? I would watch this as a child. I have rewatched it more times than I should admit um, <laughs> as an adult. And yeah, you know, you get different things at different ages. And I guess I just don't think of, of all the things that children these days have access to, really, is that going to be the, the sexual thing? It just seems a little absurd as Do you a think fear. a small kid at a drag queen story hour is looking at that and thinking, that is a man in a dress, as opposed to, that's just a crazy woman. That's just a big, loud, brassy uh you know, I see drag queens and they remind me more often of real housewives on all of his awful franchises <laughs> than any actual women that I've ever met. Do you think that a kid, like like a little kid, a toddler doesn't see a, a drag queen and think, oh, there's an inherent tension here between the, bo- the male body <laughs> this person was born into and their gender expression and presentation here and they're complicating. Like, I don't think a toddler is doing that. I think a toddler is just seeing a crazy lady telling a story. Well, the toddlers on Twitter whose parents quote them definitely have oh sophisticated thoughts like that. For, for people who don't know what you're referring to there, can you unpack for toddlers who's being quoted on Twitter by their parents? Yes, there's there's kind of a, a thing on the uh, social media platform Twitter where um, people will quote their young children as saying very politically sophisticated things, which maybe they did say, maybe not. Um, but then that kind of gets mocked as like my newborn um i've seen these tweets too where like somebody says oh my seven-year-old just said and it's obviously wish casting on the part of the parent or the seven-year-old if they said it was just repeating something that they heard the parents say Mm -hmm. but they always off they always to me read like sure yeah sure yeah your your five-year-old just said that incredibly (laughs) sophisticated thing about gender and sexuality and code switching or whatever else Mm -hmm, that your mm -hmm. five-year-old said something right but but, but i want to drill down on this idea that drag queens are mocking women because that is really kind of where you're yes go that drag you write drag kind of sort of does actually mock women that is part of it not all of it but not None of it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I stand. So there are some British feminists in particular who I've seen um, speak of drag as woman face, which I don't think is quite right, because I don't think it's the same as blackface. I don't think it's analogous. But I think there's the spectrum, right? So sometimes there's comedy, the point of which is simply, look, the man is wearing a dress. Isn't that funny? And this is comedy rooted in sexism and homophobia, to be honest, like and transphobia, it's really, you know, that's that type of thing, like, haha, look, the man is wearing a dress. And that's the, a joke. And that's a sort of very, like, um, mass comedy kind of thing. The, the example you cite is like a frat boy mincing around at a right. costume party in a right. cheerleader outfit. Right, right. Um there Which are, I wouldn't understand that as drag. I would understand that. Oh, as I wouldn't either. Oh, no, no. I, I don't I don't think else. that that's drag. And I also what's also not drag is if somebody assigned male at birth presents as a woman but doesn't pass. That's also not drag. That's a, tr- a trans woman. That's a trans woman. Doesn't that's a woman. doesn't necessarily pass. Right. But, but, but what I'm saying is that drag to me falls somewhere um, in a kind of ambiguous category because on the one hand, it's gay men who are 
marginalized and who are expressing like it's not gender nonconformity in the sense of being trans, but it's, you know, not conforming to the sort of macho um, masculine stereotypes and sort of pushing the boundaries of gender. On the other hand, it's men who are people who have more power in society than women. You know, so, I mean, you can analyze it to death. And the point is that I just think there is no answer. And when it's gay men doing it, it's it's men who are victims of homophobia, which I've always described as misogyny's shitty little brother. Like people who right. hate gay men tend to also hate women. I always warn straight women if they're dating a guy who's a homophobe. You know, he doesn't like gay men because he thinks they're like women because we get penetrated because we suck dick because we are not doing with women what we're supposed to do with women and doing those things with each other. And like if he has a problem with us, he's a problem with you. Full disclosure, I did drag for like a decade. I know this is a long time listener. And I I never (laughs) felt when I was doing drag like I was mocking women. I always felt like I was mocking what it meant to be a man, particularly in the context that drag evolved in that it's really kind of burst out of post RuPaul in a way I think that's destabilizing like how drag is perceived or understood because if you were drag meant giving up a kind of power desirability masculinity masculine self-presentation in a gay bar those are three different kinds of power the minute you went into a gay bar and drag you were saying I eschew all of that. I, I let, I am not trying to pick you up. I am not trying to get picked up. I'm not in competition. I am outside of it, of all of those like power mm-hmm. dynamics. So it's easier for me in drag in a gay bar to talk to a guy I didn't know than when I was not mm-hmm. in drag, because when I was in drag, the guy didn't have to weigh whether or not he wanted to talk to me against whether or not he wanted to sleep with me. Cause what I was mm-hmm. saying was I'm not trying to get in your pants. And for me, drag always had this kind of shamanistic, like priestly role in in gay bars. Mm-hmm. And I feel like drag in libraries, drag everywhere is being not seen in its proper context, which is, for me, it always felt like, again, I'll say it, like making fun of what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be a man in a gay bar by dressing up in women's clothing And there's a feminist analysis of drag that says that by showing that this like hyper feminine sort of shell uh, presentation that a man can do this too, that means it's not essential to what it means to be a woman to present in this way. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think what you say about context is really key and um, really does get it why I think something changes when there are women in the, not just the audience as in like the proverbial bachelorettes crashing a bar for gay men, but just women going about their business, doing things like watching television, going to a library, you know, things where you would expect to find women. Once women are in the audience, the fact of the matter is a lot of women do interpret it as, mockery. And it, I, I should say it, drag can be all sorts of things. Sometimes it can be misogynistic, sometimes not, you know, it depends on the type of performance. But the mere bit, because there is this thing in comedy where the mere fact of a man wearing a dress in a sort of mainstream context is, again, like sexist, homophobic joke. I, I think it can just be a little tricky. Like, what are you looking at exactly? And is this, where is it coming from? So drag shouldn't be done. People shouldn't do drag. People should be critical of drag. We should make a distinction between misogynistic drag and non-misogynistic drag. 
What's the what's the poly prescription here? The prescription, and um, as dictator of all libraries, um, having <laughs> been in some libraries in my time, I think it's fine. I, I think it's fine to have uh, the more events, the better. Frankly, I'm just happy if there's any sort of in-person library event for to bring a child to. I don't really care at this point what it is, and I certainly think banning drag story hour, banning children around drag is nuts. But I, I just basically would question whether it's the world's most, I'd question the idea that you're doing the world's most progressive thing by hosting or attending one. That's really where I stand on it, that I don't think that it necessarily, I think there are too many things going on for it to necessarily be that the um, the possibility that a child sees this and comes away from it with some sort of gender expansive views. Well, I would agree that you're not doing the most progressive thing in the world. Sometimes, you know, I, I wonder ugh, if these right-wing demagogues haven't done drag a little bit of a favor by making drag dangerous again. One of the things I felt over the last decade observing drag, since I no longer do it, is that drag got kind of boring. Drag got kind of defanged. And, you know, I... I hate the Proud Boys. I hate the Patriot Front. I hate these people who are out there projecting onto drag queens what the youth pastor is guilty <laughs> of having done down at the megachurch. Um, it's dangerous. Somebody's going to get hurt. People keep showing up at drag queen story hours to shout them down and shut them down. They're scaring children and traumatizing <laughs> children. Then again, like drag was really getting kind of anodyne and a little baby perhaps too mainstream for its own good. The first time I saw a drag queen in a mainstream product for kids was The Little Mermaid when they based uh, Ursula, the character, on Divine, the drag queen from John right. Waters' trash cinema classics, like Female Trouble. And that may have been the first drag queen story hour, although there, there are always <laughs> Disney villains who are coded queer in this way that if you think about it, start putting the pieces together, it's really awful. What would you say, though, then, you know, they're making drag dangerous again, right as people began to make the argument that straight men can do drag and that cis women can do drag. We've had our first straight male contestant after having trans uh, women contestants on Drag Race. Now we've had a straight guy as a drag queen on Drag Race. Uh, there are cis women out there saying that they are drag queens too. Not drag kings, not women dressing mm -hmm. up as men, but women dressing up as these hyper-feminized, what someone call woman face versions of women. How do they fit into your philosophy or your critique? Um, that is fascinating. The idea that there could be a woman who's a drag queen, um, a, a cisgender woman who's a drag queen. And I mean, I guess the only thing that makes me think of is this whole idea of femme as a queer category, but also as sort of like, because I've seen a lot of stuff online about like that, a straight woman can't be femme. But this idea that sort of over-the-top femininity is sort of um, ironic if it's done by somebody who is not a straight, specifically cisgender woman. I don't know the sexual orientation of the drag queens. That, but I that think strikes me as like ridiculous. I, I, I'm a gay <laughs> man with a pretty generally masculine presentation, but sometimes I camp it up and I'm a super faggy fag. Like the idea that a woman in a like sort of a, you know, comfortable with herself and not performing femininity can't herself 
ramp it up into well that it shouldn't be called femme or something like that or but i think that it's more also just this idea that this ironic femininity would be although there is now this whole thing of reclaiming the bimbo which maybe is related to the cis women drag queens um it seems strange just because there already is the phenomenon of dressing up if you're a woman and uh you know some women like you say about the real housewives have a style that i guess the difference maybe if it's if you're calling yourself a drag queen as a woman would be the, the this sort of irony, but it does seem a little bit, I don't want to be that, oh, I feel like I'm that horrible, like stay in your lane, but it just seems odd to me. It just, I would, I would feel if I put on a, a lot of makeup and a, well, I can't imagine what sort of <laughs> wig, but it just feel like I'd be a woman with a lot of makeup and a wig, you know? Or you were appropriating something from, Female communities. Yeah. You know, it's a drag, former drag queen, recovering drag queen. The problem with in my life when I was prepubescent and pubescent were the ways in which I was feminine. And one thing drag gave me when I was a young adult gay man was a way of saying, I'm going to, this thing that I was shamed for, I'm going to dial up for 11, own, and shove right back down your throat. Like, watch me. You thought I was like, effeminate at 11 watch me at 25 right and in that way it felt empowering to inhabit that kind of ferocious femininity and one of the things i observed when i you know i looked i you know was six seven feet tall i looked like a giant barbie doll slash penthouse magazine centerfold but with my dress on right and one of the things I always found so fascinating was like straight men would look at me and think that was what I was told women would look like and they don't. But you look like that and you're a dude. And I loved sowing that kind of confusion. But again, in an adult contact in adult places with, mm-hmm. with other adults. And that was, I don't know where I'm going with that. That was specifically a kind of revenge that I was taking on straight guys. No, but like with the defanging though, the sort of drag becoming, um, having a different place in society, I wonder how much of this does have to do with a wider mainstream awareness of transgender women existing. Because now if you see somebody who's seven feet tall, um, if I in Toronto, which, and this does happen, see somebody who's extremely tall, wearing women's clothing with, you know, broad shoulders, I do not think, oh, that must be, a drag queen in a more on a casual Friday. No, I, you know, I, I would assume drag queens probably, don't go out in women's clothes <laughs> to go grocery. Well, that's what I'm saying, obviously, but I'm saying that even or even more dressed up, I would not, my first thought would not be drag queen. There were trans women a decade ago who were arguing that drag made the world more dangerous for trans women because it put it into people's heads, particularly as drag was becoming more and more mainstreamed that you know, a, a drag queen was a man in a dress mm-hmm. and so was a trans woman. A trans woman was a man in a dress. That was sometimes an insult mm-hmm. uh, that was hurled at trans women. That that kind of went away almost at the same time as, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race took over the world. That argument that drag made the world more dangerous for trans women, I think as drag became more mainstreamed and culturally prominent, there was a more sophisticated broad understanding of the difference between drag and being a woman or being a trans woman. Uh, you argue in your piece, though, that maybe, you know, the Julie Bindles of the world who identifies as a turf trans exclusionary radical feminist, that is uh, an insult that's sometimes thrown at people who are totally down with 
trans people, but not, you know, may have some reservations about trans women in sports or whatever. But Bindle identifies as a turf. You suggest that maybe Bindle should have more of an issue with drag than she does with trans women. Uh, I don't think I named Bindle specifically. I know who she is and she would uh, fit the bill for this. But I think, yes, that's sort of that part of the political spectrum of British feminism. I think there is this sense that a lot of my sense is that what they're often very um, worked up about is the sense that women are being mocked and that somebody's mocking women and somebody's sort of making light of like what actual women go through and putting on this hyper feminine outfit and, you know, ignoring the sort of biological realities of childbirth and so forth. And, and like that it's male privilege. If anyone's performing what it is to be a woman, it's a drag queen, not a trans woman. I, I think leave, leave everybody alone. Everybody should leave everybody alone. Just be nice. But I do think that what they're, that they, they might be doing a bit of the conflating of drag queen and, trans woman with the sort of man in a dress type mm-hmm. speaking. And I think these are different categories and that a man choosing to perform as a woman, that's not an identity trait on the basis of which you can really be. De- it's complicated, right? Because it's still like it is and it isn't. Well, and it's complicated because you're not saying gay men shouldn't be able to do drag. You're not saying that. I don't, I think, queen. I think everybody should be able to. Story hours. I I think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I think I hear you saying is that people who do drag need to approach it with some care and be thoughtful. I've certainly seen shitty misogynistic drag acts um, and I don't like them. And I think that's lazy and punching down. Like you say in your piece, I think that's a kind of punching down. And if you're aware that if you approach drag, clumsily or carelessly or thoughtlessly that you could be you know guilty of not a misogynistic hate crime but guilty of perpetuating misogyny and you should think about that if you're a dude a gay dude pulling on a dress even if you're just going to a gay bar i think that's absolutely right because obviously yeah this is where the sort of the woman face analogy really does um fall flat because i think like you say there should just be whatever your gender, you should be able to wear whatever you feel like. And it's not cultural appropriation in any way to, you know, for a man to wear a dress, a woman to wear, you know, not a dress, <laughs> pants, not a skirt, <laughs> not a skirt, whatever it is, jeans or something. We're almost out of time. And before you go, I wanted to quickly ask you about the essay you wrote for Hedgehog Review on straightness studies. Sure. In the Hedgehog Review, you wrote about a piece called Straightness Studies, most of the people you observe doing the studying and the theorizing about straightness seem to be queer, and many of them kind of can't quite grasp the concept of heterosexuality in women. Mm-hmm. What would you say to people out there doing straightness studies that they need to bear in mind about straight women? The main thing that's misunderstood about straight women is that straight women are women attracted to men, and that's that's the whole thing. It's not about being attracted to conventionality. Some people are, some people aren't. It's not about some sort of absence of sexuality. It's not like, well, you just go through life doing the expected thing. No, it's an active attraction to men. You know, it's that's what it is. So much queer theorizing seems to turn everything on its head. The only authentic expression of femininity is that done by 
assigned male at birth persons. The only authentic expression of masculinity is assigned female at birth persons who are masked. The only authentic expression of, you know, desire for a male sex partner is when it's a, a side male at birth person expressing that kind of desire. There's this, you know, I, I encounter this a lot in, in queer spaces, this idea that, you know, a guy whose mask is faking it, but a guy who's femme is being his authentic self. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what I really liked about your uh, straightness studies essay was it did seem like you were identifying this strain in queer theater where people seem to think that if a woman was with a man or wanted to be with men, she was just reluctant to let go of the privilege that came with being with a man. She wasn't actually attracted to males or masculinity or dick or anything else. She was mm-hmm. just wanting to access straight privilege, not mm-hmm. men's bodies and dick. Right. And I think that's a very understandable position to land on if that's been your own experience of heterosexuality, that it's been something imposed upon you by society. But if it's more that you were, you know, a child growing up and you saw the poster for Wayne's World when you were eight years old and you thought that Dana Carvey as Garth was like extremely attractive. Are you telling on yourself right now? I would never. Um, (laughs) Then that's, but that's real, you know, that's as real as anything else, you know? And yes, society was, you know, pressuring me to find Garth from Wayne's World attractive when I was eight years old. But I also, I don't really think that even without society's influence, it would have been otherwise. For me, it was Sean Cassidy. (laughs) All right. Everybody who comes on uh, this dumb bonus podcast has to take a sex question with me. Uh, So here we go. We're going to play this sex question now. Hi, Dan. I'm a Magnum subscriber from a Western state. Um, Me and some friends are talking about hosting a sex party. What types of tips do you have for this type of thing? Neither of us have hosted anything like this before, but we want to make sure everybody has a good time and is safe. If you have any etiquette tips or just general hosting tips for this type of party, that would be great. So any hosting tips for sex parties? Absolutely. So yes, definitely. Um, as the mother of two small children, I'm frequently during COVID, we're, we're just, you know, it's <laughs> constantly, you know, never. You, you drop the kids off at Drag Queen Story Hour and exactly. you home to host a sex party. Exactly. That's just, you know, um, I would say for safety tips for any sort of party outdoors, if COVID's still going, I guess, would be um, probably a good way to go. In terms of the having a good time, I would think a sex party would probably be, you wouldn't want to do one of those things where you don't know who else is invited. Like, you probably would want to know when you're invited, who else is going to be there, because you would want to make sure these are people you would want to be at that kind of a party with. Whereas otherwise, if you're sort of surprised who's there you know at a regular party it's like whatever but if it's a sex party you that's not a good surprise i would assume um these are really good tips for someone who's i'm guessing never hosted a sex party i would think that um it just seems very vague i just wonder is it like sexually themed is it an actual orgy like i don't know yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have condoms around, have have drinks around, have fluids yeah. around. Particularly if anybody's going to use like recreational drugs, you're going to have to be like conscious of that, cognizant of that. I would declare any sex party I hosted to be a sober sex party because you don't want to deal with somebody who's medicating themselves to the point where they can be disinhibited, but then they get a little over medicated and consent violations or messiness happens. Keep it right. sober and maybe have a plant. Maybe have a couple of people who are 
going to go first. Oh, I thought you meant like a literal house plant. And I was going to say, I guess that would be the vibe, right? <laughs> like a lot of leaves like no, floating around. A couple of ringers, somebody to, yeah. to get that party started. Because if a lot of first timers are at a sex party, people will feel inhibited and will want someone else to go first. And if you have a couple of volunteers who are going to jump in and go first, that can get the sex party rolling. But yeah, COVID is still a thing. If you're gay and thinking about hosting a sex party right now, monkeypox is a thing. Right, right. Um, and safety, the, you know, the best etiquette tip is not to get everybody sick at your sex party. I would think that would be a, a good idea. And also, you know, check the expiration date on any food you're serving so that you get food poisoning while you're at it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's it would probably be like most other parties except for that extra added. You want to make sure. Also, I guess you want to make sure that people can go and not do anything, right, and just observe. That could be another. You could let people know that that's okay. Yeah, no pressure. Although, you know, I've been to a couple of sex parties where the rule was if everybody plays, everybody, mm. so that there weren't people hanging back and looking. And, and then, you know, if you don't want to play, you know, if you don't want to feel pressured to play, you don't go to that particular kind of everybody in the pool sex party. So maybe the caller could be clear about that, too. Would you accept an invitation to a sex party? I mean, I have not done anything in the evening practically ever since having these small children. But, you know, if we get the, the right, you know, cast of Britbox actors, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm too old. I think I'm too old. Oh my God. If you're, you look a lot, we're able to see each other right now. We're on video. Uh, if you're I'm almost too old, 39. What, what the hell? Of, oh my God. In, in, in heterosexual female years, that's like 500 years old. It, it is not. I'm here from the future to tell you that uh, most adult heterosexual opposite sex couples who get involved in swinging, it's after their children are grown. So 40s and 50s is really common. So if this is something you want in the future, don't feel disqualified by age. Phoebe Maltz-Bovey is the author of The Perils of Privilege, co-host of the Feminine Chaos podcast. You can find her on Twitter at Bovey Maltz, and you can find her newsletter on Substack at phoebemaltzbovey.substack.com. Thank you so much for coming on, Phoebe. It was a real pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much, Dan. This was so much fun. All right. That was Sex and Politics. Thank you so much for being a Magnum subscriber to the Savage Lovecast. We will have another Sex and Politics for you a little sooner than this one came out. Uh, we appreciate your support. Thank you for subscribing. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Phoebe Maltz-Bovey.